for the people in the streets, in the bars. We are all of us in the gutter. Some of us are looking at the stars. Look round the room. Life is unkind. Welcome to The Behaviorist with Work Wisdom, where we help you adopt high-performance mindsets, behaviors, communication, and culture. I'm your host, Kedron Crosby. Our intention for The Behaviorist podcast is to share accessible, concrete practices that you can weave into your whole life to begin a shift toward joy and meaningful achievement. We're grateful today to be hearing from The Pretenders, as well as Dr. Jill Kozer, Director of Curriculum and Instruction from the School District of the City of York, and Joe McMonigle, Vice President of Atomic Design. Hello, friends. Hello. Hello. Thanks so much for um, being part of the show today and sharing your ideas. Um, as our listeners probably know, work wisdom seeks to revolutionize achievement. So today we're exploring what role optimism plays in helping us achieve and flourish. So my first question is uh, this idea of what was the most optimistic thing that we've ever done? So Joe, do you have an idea? What was the most optimistic thing that you've ever done? You know, that's kind of a trick question to an optimist because <laughs> everything is awesome and, and full of possibility, right? Every yeah. single day. So it's kind of hard to pick one. Yeah. Um, was it breakfast was, this morning? <laughs> I mean, getting out of bed was awesome. <laughs> that was so incredible. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but honestly, I can think back to the first time you invited me to be a part of uh, Work Wisdom podcast. It's super outside of my comfort zone. And so I thought that I would try it anyway because I felt like there was something to be learned from being a part of, uh, of a conversation like this. And I, well, I, like I said, it was out of my comfort zone. I was a part of it and I felt like uh, we did a good job as a team. You're amazing. Um, and uh, I really enjoyed, uh, you know, learning from that experience. And so maybe not the most in the world, because like I said, every day is full of super high points. Um, but one for sure was being Excellent. a part of this last time around. Yeah. And now that now you're an expert, you know, you're like the house <laughs> band. We're like, let's just call Joey McMonagall. He'll do it. He'll do anything. Um, Jill, do you have one in mind? What's the most so, optimistic thing you've ever done? I'm just cracking up because Joe, I'm sitting here looking at my list of five or six different things that I wrote down and couldn't decide either. Um, awesome. But I would say I would land on the most optimistic thing I've ever done was becoming a parent. Mm. Uh, yeah. Sure takes a lot of optimism to do that. Absolutely yeah. does, especially yeah. in this world and in this day and age. Yeah. Well, yeah. let's, let's define optimism. Um, so I, of course, am going to use the emotional intelligence EQ definition of optimism. So optimism is an indicator of one's positive attitude and outlook on life. It involves remaining hopeful and resilient despite occasional setbacks. So optimism and hope are so important and that they're actually two of the four key components of psychological capital. Uh, it was probably three months ago that we had an episode of The Behaviorist where we talked about PSYCAP or psychological capital. And since it was a few months ago, I'll provide a quick refresher. Um, so basically there are four types of capital. 
which we can invest in any entity. So whether it's a cool company like Atomic or an essential part of civil society like a school district. So the four types of capital are traditional economic capital, and we think about finances or tangible assets like plants, equipments. Um, there's human capital, which is what you know. So that's our education, our experience, our skills, our ideas. And then there's social capital, which is who you know, your relationships, your friends, your networks. And then there's psychap or psychological capital. And then this is who you are. So um, th this has four components, and it's confidence and hope, optimism, and resilience. And sometimes this confidence is called efficacy. So um, in positive psychology, we have this clever little um, uh, acronym for, for what psychological capital is, and they call it HERO. So it's hope, um, efficacy, resilience, and optimism, and that makes the word hero. So um, I'm not going to go too far down down that thread, but I do want to just tell you some of the definitions for hope. Um, so hope is actually a positive state where our feelings of agency or our goal-oriented determination and then our pathways, so how proactively we can plan uh, to achieve those goals, how they interact. Um, so that feeling of agency and then our pathways and how do they interact. So that's what hope is. And I also wanted to give you the positive psychology definition of optimism, which is optimism is, a theorized, is theorized as a realistically positive view of what we can or cannot do. So realistically positive view of what we cannot or can do. Um, the reason why we really want to explore this, of course, is because there are positive, um, significant, empirical relationships between PSYCAP and job satisfaction, organizational commitment, psychological well-being, um, desirable employee behaviors like citizenship, um, and, and conversely, you can see the negative. So if you have low PSYCAP, this hero that I'm talking about, you have undesirable employee attitudes, more like cynicism, turnover, stress, anxiety, and um, we actually call it deviance, which means undesirable employee behaviors. So the reason why these four capacities are the ones that Fred Luthens chose to define PSYCAP is because they're measurable. They are open to development, meaning they're changeable, and they can be managed in the workplace. So um, that was sort of me on my soapbox wearing my professor hat. I'm now climbing off of my soapbox, and I want to talk about real behavior and what all of this really means to us. So, um, so both of you are very important leaders in your organization, and an important and measurable part of being a leader is this idea of inspiration, or sometimes we call it insight. So inspiration is where a leader shares a purpose of a hopeful vision uh, for colleagues to follow. So this means the team can become compelled or inspired to exceed their goals. Um, so we know this is a big part of inspirational leadership, and it's really bolstered by optimism. So when you think about being a leader... Do you ever try to make optimism or even hope contagious? Um, have you ever tried to bake it in either to the culture or maybe even in your home life? So 
Jill, what do you think? You know, maybe think about work for a minute. You know, are there times that you're trying to make optimism or hope contagious? What does that look like? Absolutely. So for me in leading several different uh, teams, schools, uh, organizations, really it's like a twofold process for me, right, of how you bake this in. One is building that concept of hope and continuously developing that deep well of um, why people are coming in to do this work every day with students, with families, with each other as colleagues. And so we do that in a couple of ways. I love that definition you just read of hope where it talked about the feelings of agency personally, plus a pathway to get there, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, um, you know, thinking about this idea of optimism paired with self-actualization or strategy. So it's not just a random optimism. We're happy all the time where our head is always in the cloud, but it's a really intentional process to build optimism and to build hope. And so, you know, some of the ways that we've done that is um, just focusing on those bright spots, looking for the things that are going right, looking for the students who are just shining and thriving and examining those case studies and saying, what's working here in this classroom, in this school, with this program or initiative? And so really being intentional about identifying bright spots, but again, not just randomly, looking at those bright spots as they're associated with our strategy, Mm. our culture, our core values, Mm. uh, our identified goals and practices and behaviors that we want to see as a team. So being really clear in what optimism and hope looks like, Mm -hmm. what that that positivity looks like in your, your organization's culture, but then calling attention to those really specific practices so that everybody starts to, to understand and develop a common set of behaviors that uh, align to our, our goals and our values. Yeah, it's been such a joy to see you do that in your career where you are very intentional about what's the behavior that inspires hope or optimism and then shines the light on it. And then you really shine the light on those behaviors that foster that that value. So Joe, um, as you know, we, we at Work Wisdom, we don't just think about work, we think about our whole lives. So Can you think of any ways where you're fostering optimism or hope, trying to make it contagious, maybe within your your family life? Yeah, I can. But first, I want to just um, think about what Jill just said, which was so cool. Defining optimism and hope is a really interesting thing to help it be distinguished from what can be perceived as like naivety or ignorance of the challenges of the real challenges of a a situation or a strategy. That's That's a really cool concept that I've never considered before. And I'm, uh, as Kedjan may have mentioned, on the high optimism usage side of things. So I'm sometimes I feel like I'm trapped by this uh, perception that I don't understand how hard things are or how challenging things can be because I'm optimistic. But defining what optimism and hope can mean is a great way to make sure it's clear what optimism, optimism and hope aren't, yeah. uh, meaning like na- naivety. So, yeah. um, so thanks for sharing that, Joe. That was really cool. Um, the so which then I guess leads me to your question. Um, yeah, defining hope and naivety, in, or I'm sorry, hope and optimism in the family can also be, it's a tricky thing sometimes because not everybody uh, lives the same experience. I, I think of optimism often, and maybe even incorrectly, as I'm learning through, through this, uh, through the definitions you just shared, as, as really being a, a focus or a, an outcome of perspective. 
Um, so I feel like it's very flexible. If someone isn't feeling very hopeful or optimistic, they can be shown just how good things are, and then therefore they will feel the same way. Mm. And that's not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the, the risky sort of backside of, of optimism when unchecked, uh, if left unchecked by empathy, for example, uh, mm. it can be not very positive yeah. and not such a helpful thing, especially in a family situation. Yeah. But breaking it in, I mean, I think uh, I think about how to bake this uh, this perspective into your family life or, or even work and organizational relationships is taking time to take stock of the things that are good uh, to be have a sort of that that uh, thankfulness or gratitude focused mindset um, is a great way to to be open to the possibilities that a, a optimistic or hopeful perspective can can shine a light onto you. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. You know, and I, I always think about that, um, that idea that optimism um, at its core is this idea that, you know, either way, however this turns out, I'm going to be okay. Ultimately, mm -hmm. I'm going to be able to land on my feet. So it is a positive state, you know, both hope and optimism are a positive state, but realistic. And they are tied to goal orientation and agency, the pathways to, to make it come to fruition. Um, so, so what do we think about the greatest benefit of being highly optimistic? Joe, what do you think the greatest benefit is of being highly optimistic? Um, for, on a personal level, I feel like the optimism or optimism can help, um, avoid negative stress. Um, when, when you're trapped in a, in a, from a, in a perspective of this isn't going to work this is all going to fail. Uh, you know, the physical impact of that alone can be really negative. So um, optimism, I think, puts you in a position to avoid that trap in, in negative stress and be focused on on the possibilities and the outcomes. And I think that frees you up to then pursue those outcomes. If you're in a, in a sticky spot or facing a hard challenge, um, you need to be creative, you need to be flexible, you need to be resilient. And if all you can see is the potential failure, um, I don't believe that puts you in a great perspective or a great mindset to to find the solution. Mm, yeah. So freeing. Um, so Jill, Jill, can you think of any costs to high optimism? Well, I go back to what Joe said that, you know, sometimes being a high optimist can definitely lead to people not having a, a true understanding of the intention and the research that's gone into that optimism. And so I think, <laughs> you know, that that could definitely be one. But I think also when there, there have been times in my life where I've been highly optimistic about a project or an initiative and I've missed the potential derailers. Like I've just zoomed over them mm -hmm. and I didn't take time mm -hmm. to stop and listen mm -hmm. to pessimists who have some really valid feedback in some of these situations. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, as a result of that, I failed to plan for those things and it either stalled or completely halted whatever the program or initiative was. And so I think there, there's definitely a risk um, of being overly optimistic. The other piece that I think plays into the, the costs as well is that there have been times that I've bit off a little more than I can chew. And um, again, thinking about this in the context of family, my husband yeah. and my kids will say, you know, I'll have a list for the weekend. This is what we're getting done. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, we can do that. Sure. You can have your friends over. To, oh, we'll get it all accomplished. Yeah, no, we yeah. maybe will get a third of it accomplished yeah. at times. So, you know, there's a potential to let others down when you're committing to something that um, is not 
a realistic view of what I can actually accomplish or what I can actually do. So certainly there's some costs to be aware of and to, to recognize and to plan for. Yeah, I, I really like this idea of realistic optimism, you know, and this idea of how do we reality test our, our to-do lists, you know, or our goals for our lives. So do you two have any tips for ensuring that your optimism is sufficiently reality tested? I don't know, Jill, do you have any? Yeah, so my number one tip would be to um, marry someone who's very <laughs> much, very grounded in yeah. reality testing. John you beat done. me to it. Yeah. yeah. That's it, been an absolute um, fantastic asset to yeah. my leadership abilities. Yeah. Um, just having someone to bounce those ideas off but off of, but um, in, in a work setting, you know, really being intentional about building your team and balancing mm. your team with, maybe not necessarily pessimists. I call them detail-oriented optimists. Mm -hmm. So people who are with you, they believe in it, they're grounded in the Mm -hmm. hope that you are, but they have an eye for the details. Mm -hmm. And they want to get where you want them to go but they just want to know a little bit more about how we're going to get there. And they're going to make sure that we've got a, a clear path yeah. along the way. So really, I would say making sure that there are people around you who are, are able to have that safety to voice a concern or to ask another question for that next level of detail. Because again, chances are if they're asking it, there's a lot of other people thinking it. Yeah. Joe, do you have any other tips? Uh, well, I think Jill, you nailed it with the with those two, and I love the optimistic way you just described those um, reality-based optimists. Is that the word you chose? My That's detail really great. oriented <laughs> detail. Okay. optimist. Detail-oriented yes, optimist. How optimistic of a way to describe the pessimists in your organization? That's really well done. <laughs> They're just detail-oriented. <laughs> Uh, no, I totally agree. Finding balance with your team, whether that's your partner in life or your uh, partners at work, um, that's that's my lifeline. Um, my wife's superpower is empathy. So when I get super focused on my own hopeful aspirations of whether the weekend schedule or any other thing in our life, um, she's really good at, at bringing me back to reality um, because sometimes I can zoom past, like you mentioned, Jill, uh, some of the impacts of the decisions or the the speed at which I want to move uh, has real impact on other people. And uh, sometimes I miss that because I'm so focused on how exciting the outcome will be. I know it will be. Just trust me. Let's do it. Um, So, you know, I think I don't have anything to add, brother, really. Yeah. So in the world of emotional intelligence, when we're working with people who have extremely high optimism that might have a cost, we usually tell them to find a sounding board. So it could be Mm -hmm. a husband, it could be some uh, detail-oriented people at work, um, but finding some sounding board that they can check in with before they make any major life decision is really important. Also, checking in with data, and that might come from the detail-oriented people that you're that you're finding, Jill, but, um, you know, looking at past data, um, not to, not to commit you to not being able to become an outlier, but also just being more realistic is another way to do that. So, um, let's think about our jobs and let's think about whether or not we could do our jobs as well as we do without high usage of optimism, so, Joey, in your work, do you think you could do your job as well as you do uh, without high usage of optimism? I really don't. And I think it's because that notion of balance on our team. Uh, again, to borrow your phrase, Jill, the, the detail-oriented optimists on my team, 
are are the ones who have to actualize uh, the projects we work on. They have to execute the things. They're challenged with all of the, or they they meet all of the real um, real challenges that are that come along with a thing. Um, so it's really hard. It's really easy for the, for that group or for anybody in, in those positions to focus on all the challenges and miss the opportunity side of, of anything that we work on. Um, so part of my role is to remind us all that there is a there is an outcome here that's positive. Uh, the work is going to be hard. Yes, it's going to be full of change and uncertainty. Yes, and we're going to have to break into new or break boundaries into new spaces that we've never been before. That's all scary. But when we do it, it will be so cool and so good and so serving of the client's needs. Um, and that's why we're here because we're good at those things and we're we're able to meet those challenges. That's why we're in our roles. So I think it's a huge part of the of uh, the recipe that I bring um, to the team at Atomic. Yeah, and there might be other roles at Atomic that wouldn't require as uh, the levels of optimism that you need to bring is one thing that True. I've thought about. You know, um, Jill, what do you, what do you, what's it like for you? Yeah, so thinking about could I do this job um, without a high usage usage of optimism, I mean, my answer is just not a chance. Okay, education is it's just always amazed me because it is one of the fields that is physically demanding all day, every day. Yeah. It's emotionally demanding all day, every day. Mm. And it's mentally, I mean, you're just, you're drained. You are in front of people and kids and families and teachers. And I mean, it is, you are on all the time engaging all components of yeah. your being. And so I, I don't think you can do this work without a deep well of optimism and it's especially important as leaders in education um, just to have that well and to be able to monitor when when the well is getting a little Depleted. low and yeah. you know mm -hmm. you need that time as well mm -hmm. because it is absolutely critical to to model optimism to every stakeholder that we serve every day. Yeah. Well, since since it's so important, I want to think about the fact that optimism can be learned. So learned optimism is the idea in positive psychology that a talent for joy or like any other talent can be cultivated. So it's contrasted with learned helplessness, which is a condition in which a person suffers from a sense of powerlessness. So, um, Learned optimism is fostered by consciously challenging any negative self-talk. And now that I'm hearing both of you talk about how important optimism is to your own success in your jobs, I think it's important that we think about this notion of learned optimism in order to bolster the success of the people we work with. So do you have any tips that you'd share with our listeners about ways that you might consciously challenge negative self-talk? Joey, do you have any tips about how you might uh, consciously challenge negative self-talk? Well, I can say uh, coming to those conversations with empathy for the, the the situation that the person you're engaged with is is in is a huge first step. Uh, the I can tell you what you shouldn't do is to remind somebody uh, in a who's a uh, you know in a moment of negativity how good things are for them or how lucky they are that that things aren't as bad as they could be. Uh, that is not the way to do it. I, I've learned that one um, over the years. So taking time to hear from people what their challenges are and, and giving them space to express their concerns, then uh, maybe potentially remind, uh, pointing out to them their successes along the way, milestones or 
or at the end of a project for, you know, in our world, pretty project focused, showing people, this is the result. Look at this thing you've done or the, the thing you've contributed to, um, you know, reminding them of their successes. And I don't really know, actually, I'd be curious to hear from the two of you if there's a, a way to deal with it in the moment, like in the in an acute state of negativity, is there an effective way to to bring positivity to that conversation? Do either of you have any experience in that world? Um, I, I'm really interested in shining the light on their agency, their sense of um, efficacy. Yeah. So helping them recognize where they have been able to make changes is really what fosters optimism. So it's not telling them so much um, what they've done and, and congratulating them on that as much as it is asking them in a coaching kind of way, well, you know, what's an area of your life where you've had control, you've been intentional, you've made steps, and then you've executed on that. And then they start to realize, oh, I, I can make change. I do have agency. And that then usually it's a matter of helping them find the pathway to do that, replicate that in some other areas of their life. Jill, do you have any other ideas? Yeah. And I, I am thinking of that on a personal level too, because I, I don't want it to be out there that people with high optimism never experience negative self-talk personally. No. <laughs> we do. There sure. will be spirals. Typically, yeah. there'll be big spirals. Yeah. And so how do, how do we, how do we um, challenge that? I think it goes back to that idea, right, of knowing your people and having those few core trusted relationships, those people mm -hmm. that um, you know are going to reality test your, your good optimistic thoughts, mm -hmm. but they're also going to read reality tests for you, um, your negative self-talk as well. So having your people, I think some strategies that I've learned, um, not to sound too work wisdom commercially here, but um, <laughs> in some of the workshops that we've done with Kedrin and Sarah, thinking about this idea of the turnaround and as you have a, a thought that's just you know really nagging at you is it true and turning that thought around and I know Kedrin can explain the concept mm -hmm. um, so much better but processing it through a different lens to look at it from a different perspective has helped to kind of jolt uh, my thought process. So I think that's huge. And, and I think the other thing that we've talked about in some of our workshops, just a concrete strategy is taking it to the worst case scenario. So what's the worst possible outcome of this? And then once you think that through, oh, so it's, it's actually not that bad. I can, I can make something good out of this. I can figure a way to, to work around or to um, break that cycle. Um, so using some of those really concrete practices as well. Yeah, Jill, I'm glad to hear that. So the, the turnaround is the work of Byron Katie, and people can look it up online and read some of her books and watch some of her TED Talks. But essentially, when you have this negative self-talk, this story that's on heavy rotation, as, as Brene Brown might say, um, you can disrupt it or at least examine it and, and maybe turn it around. Um, first, you take the story that you have on heavy rotation. The story might be... I don't know, my, my colleague doesn't respect me. Or, that's a story we hear a lot in the workplace. My colleague doesn't respect me. You turn it around to the self um, where you say, I don't respect me. And then you have to come up with three concrete times that that was true. Then you turn it around to the other, which is rather than, um, my colleague doesn't respect me. You then turn it into, I don't respect my colleague. 
very often that's the epiphany point where you mm. say, oh gosh, here, here it was. I thought she didn't like me. I don't like her, you know? And so then you come up with three concrete times when that was true. And then you turn it around to the opposite, which is um, rather than my colleague doesn't respect me, you say, my colleague does respect me. And then you come up with three concrete times that that's true. But um, that has a really effective way of putting some cracks in these firmly held beliefs that can get some light in there, get some air in there, and then and maybe start allowing you to be more optimistic. So thanks for sharing that, Jill. I had not thought about that in terms of how to using that as a tool to to build learned optimism and mitigate learned helplessness, but that that absolutely would do it. I do want to ask, very cool. yeah, I do want to ask a question about pessimists. So sometimes when we have high optimism um, and we're on some team or part of some movement, and and there's somebody who's just maybe making us bananas, and we can't figure out why they're driving us bonkers. Um, sometimes it's because they are pessimists. So I just wanted to ask you to, you know, do you, do we think that pessimists are our nemesis? Can you say that three times fast? Pessimists are our nemesis. Um, but have you ever had the experience where there's someone who um, has lower usage of optimism than you might, and, and that pushes your buttons? Jill, do you have any experiences like that? I do. And I would say that for me, this is an area that professionally, I've really had to learn how to grow and develop. Um, because early on in my work, I think I, I would have cut pessimists out of the planning process mm. because I wasn't sure what to do with it. I wasn't sure okay. how to how to, to handle that and embrace that and leverage the mm. feedback and the input um, that they brought to our teams. And so over the years, I've really come to uh, learn how to take that feedback as feedback and again, build it into the strategy of optimism, build in those concerns and use that, that perspective to actually make a plan stronger and to, um, make a team stronger. Because if we can bring a pessimist on board, oh my word, the power that that has to create true, sustainable, yeah. organizational change yeah. is incredible. Yeah. And so I've spent more time um, building those relationships, getting to know people on a personal level mm -hmm. to move past what might be like a surface level um, perception of someone to really understand where those concerns are coming from. Yeah. Joey, what's your experiments with pessimists? I love that uh, that approach. And I think it's really valid, Joe, the, the sense that when we're doing any sort of communication uh, through the organization, it's not just communication for me and people who think and act just like me. It's for everyone in the team. And if there are people with differing perspectives or different levels of uh, usage of optimism, if you want to call them uh, detail-oriented optimists or pessimists, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's important that the message gets through to them. So to your point, Jill, taking uh, a pessimist perspective as insightful feedback on how we need to craft this message to be effective, that's a really positive and uh, optimistic way to take, to take that. Um, I can certainly say that, yes, uh, in the, my in my life, the pessimist point of view does sort of drive me crazy. Mm -hmm. I don't understand sometimes why somebody would only see all the, the potential cracks in an otherwise beautiful mm -hmm. scene. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a uh, it challenges me and uh, will continue to challenge me emotionally and professionally to come to terms with that. But 
But regardless of how I feel about those perspectives, that is someone's perspective, and it's incumbent on me to to respond to that and to um, respect it, to give it space, and to and to try to be effective in communication anyway. There, Joey, do you find too that if you know you're going into a meeting or a room or an encounter with a pessimist, do you have to like I have to mentally and emotionally <laughs> prepare myself? Like I have to take a minute, yeah, check where I'm at yeah. emotionally and mentally take a really deep breath Mm -hmm. and be really intentional Mm -hmm. about being ready to go into that encounter Mm -hmm. in a way that um, is going to be positive for all of us. I don't know. Do you find that, Joey? I do. And I honestly, I I probably have overcompensated in the past and at at the expense of being honest. Um, Sometimes I've tried to use kid gloves to try to maybe I'll just maybe I won't get super deep into this thing because I know someone's going to be upset about some part of it. And that's not respectful or honest either. So it's a balance between recognizing the challenge of the situation and being, like you said, mentally prepared for that. And also, you know, being true to whatever the mission is or the, the message is um, that you have to deliver to. So it's a it's a fun balance. Yeah, it's it's also kind of ironic, too, because optimism has to do with this positivity and this open heartedness. And, and we have to use our optimism with pessimists, pessimists right? We have to yeah. come at at them with um, that positivity, that open heartedness, um, that deep listening, that patience that's going to help all of us find, you know, exactly what our best usage is to, to move the, the goal forward. So I am so grateful to both of you for being part of this movement of helping other world changers in the workplace to enhance their individual and collective team performance. Thanks listeners for downloading the behaviorist and we hope you'll subscribe. Please reach out to us through our website, workwisdomllc.com where you can enjoy Work Wisdom Press and productions, ask questions, and make suggestions of topics you'd like us to explore in future episodes. Today, we'll leave you with a quote from Oscar Wilde, also reinterpreted by Chrissy Hind. We are all of us in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. We are all of us in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars.